I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. With this crucial election now upon us, I've been thinking a lot about what we've lost during these last four years. Nothing showed me that more than a new documentary on the work of President Obama's official photographer, Pete Souza. It's brilliant. And then I remembered this conversation I had with Pete at the Miami Book Fair two years ago when we celebrated his new book, Shade, A Tale of Two Presidents. And I could think of nothing better to reprise, hoping that we will see a return to a time when generosity of spirit reigned, a time that he documented so very well. Welcome to The Literary Life, this week with Pete Souza. This is Mitchell Kaplan, and you're listening to The Literary Life. Uh, Pete Souza is my guest. Pete is appearing at the 35th edition of the Miami Book Fair. And I've just come from one of the more remarkable events that we've ever had at the Book Fair, which is Pete talking about and showing slides from his new book, Shade, A Tale of Two Presidents. Pete, welcome to The Literary Life. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Tell me the origin of this book. Well, the origin of the book is based on my Instagram feed. The difference is... On my Instagram feed, I don't necessarily tell people what I'm uh, responding to. People have gathered that it's uh, a reaction to a Trump tweet or a story or... The news of the day. news of the day. Um, But I make people uh, work and figure out what what I'm talking about. In the book, I kind of draw a straight line by including the Trump tweet or news headline that inspired my snarky post in, in the first place. Um, and so it's, it's kind of laid out there for you to see. And it's, to me, it's a good documentation of the craziness that his Trump's first 500 days was 
we we so much happens every week every month that um we, we need to remember all the crazy stuff that that this guy does well you know right at the time of uh uh Trump's inauguration. About a week later, I went to the doctor, and for the first time in my life, I discovered I had high blood pressure. <laughs> and um, clearly, it was from the same kind of shock that you clearly had uh, when he was elected. You gave the most remarkable talk just just before coming to speak to us here, and one of the one of the people who came up to ask a question pointed out that you're kind of a, a ray of light in a very dark period. And even though you're giving shade, uh, this is quite a hopeful book as well. Talk a little bit about that, too. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, there's there's an MLK quote, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. You know, we're, we're going to get through this time. Um, people... We've had a lot of worse things happen in our country. This feels really bad. It is bad. But it's not the worst thing our country has ever faced. And we're going to get through this and and be okay. And I didn't want people to forget the manner in which President Obama conducted himself and his administration for eight years. There were no scandals. The way he respected other people, the, race, the way he respected the office of the presidency, People can argue policy, and um, he wasn't perfect, but uh, he he was he was a good man who tried to do good good things for all of us, and did it in in a respectful way. Uh, and we're we have none of that right now. And I think that's what clearly comes through. That's what offends you more than anything about it. Does I mean what I, he's done to the office of the president? Yes, I have said in and uh before that if if jeb bush or uh john mccain or mitt romney or john Kasich or anybody else had become president i wouldn't be doing this because all those guys respected uh, other people and i know they would have respected the office of the presidency i may have argued vehemently policy. with some of their policy decisions but I know that they would not have disrespected other people or the office. Well, in fact, you were the White House photographer as well for Ronald Reagan during those years, too. You know, and I say the same thing about him, that he, um, he, he, he respected other people and he respected the office. And you can, you can say that, um, you know, maybe his policies didn't fit, our, fit what you and I th- think of uh, as— the, the way things should be done, but at least he was a decent human being. Yeah. And you can't say that about Trump. No, and, and I think that's really why I got the high blood pressure. It was because the schoolyard bully had taken over the office yes. of the presidency. Like I knew those kids in eighth grade and ninth grade. It's just that. And they shouldn't be president. Liked, well, and no, and that he never developed a sense of maturation. Yeah, exactly. You know? I mean, he's still. I mean, look, a bully. I mean. And you point this out, and some of your photographs, and some of the tweets, and where shade comes from. I mean, just recently, for a president, a president of the United States, not to go to a Veterans it's Day crazy. celebration or or service. Oh, and is this is remarkable. after not going to the hundredth anniversary of you know commemorating World War One. 
that he flies all the way to France and then doesn't go to the American cemetery that he's supposed to because it's raining out. And he would have had to drive instead of take the helicopter. That's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. And, you know, one of the things that was probably one of the most moving parts of your presentation and, and, and one of the images that is so moving, it was that the frame and then the next frame of President Obama at Walter Reed Hospital with pinning the Purple Heart on a guy that he thought was probably in a coma or something. Explain that one. Yeah, I mean, that was actually in Afghanistan. Uh, he, oh, he, he was, was actually at, in he, Afghanistan. Yeah, it was at the hospital in oh, Afghanistan. I didn't that. And this guy was in the ICU, the intensive care unit, um, and was being awarded the Purple Heart, but was asleep uh, or unconscious. And um, and as the military aide read the citation, President Obama was pinning the Purple Heart on his shirt. And um, after the citation was read, um, the, the doctor that was uh, there with us said to President Obama it would be okay that if he whispered a few words that he was actually awake a couple hours ago. This is somebody that had just been... Um, hurt by an IED uh, just hours before and was still at the hospital in Afghanistan before being sent to to Walter Reed. And as the president was whispering to him, there's this rustle under the sheets and um, Sergeant Hay was his name, um, still with his eyes closed, but you saw his hand just come up from under the sheets to shake hands with the president. It was just so... Something nobody else... Right. And the fact that that happened and you were able to capture it, it's those of us who are just the general population, we don't understand that circumstances like that also affect policy in some way or another, right? I mean, it's got to stay within President Obama's consciousness of what the effect of all policy actually is. Yeah, and it's it's not... um, it's not just numbers. It's, right. it's, it's actual it's, people. It's actual people. And when you make a decision uh, to send people into war, um, you know that uh, there's a chance um, that some of them are not going to live or they'll come back wounded. And it's, you know, it's, a, it's, I think, probably the hardest decision for any president to make. It's not a game. It's not a game. It's real life. You don't send soldiers down to the border as a stunt the, no, week before, exactly. the week before the election. Right. And that's what the current man that occupies the Oval Office does not understand. It's to not him, a, it's a reality show presidency. That's all it is. It's all about him and ratings and doing things that get him good attention. That's what his presidency is all about. And that's a shame. Well, and I think the intimacy that you showed in the previous book, which was, you know, President Obama, an intimate portrait, uh, which I also recommend highly. These books work so well together. And now that Michelle's book is out, all three of them work very well together, I think. Um, Yeah, I'll I'll happily put my... my my books on the same bookshelf as uh, and I think as her book. So I'm I, hoping that you, as a as a book bookshop owner, do oh, that. Oh, the, the window is already there. <laughs> the window is already there. But I I think that the intimacy of the portrait 
I mean, I was, uh, you know, listening to you and I was, I was just sort of sad for us that we had to go from that kind of a person to where we are now. But I think you ended it so hopefully that there is another generation coming up. And I think these midterms, you know, were very hopeful. Is that your feeling as well? Yeah, I, I, I mean, the, the initial reports on the midterms were uh, people were sort of lukewarm about the results. I just think it's, you know, we, we the Democrats gained close to 40 seats in the House. Um, they, they, they won a big uh, open Republican Senate seat. They, they, they took that, that seat. They, they're, more than 100 women were elected to Congress. Um, and state legislatures across the country did well. Um, you know, a uh, progressive guy in Texas got more than four million votes and almost won. And um, you know, I don't know about here in Florida. Didn't we don't go know, the we way don't it quite know right, yet. Right, don't. But it, uh, it, it does show you that the country still is divided, as is the state of Florida. Yeah. And how important it is for everybody to get out and vote. And um, you know, we had a 17-year-old kid tonight that attended my talk and was was going to be voting for the first time in in 2020. Give out that hashtag that you had about yeah, 2020. vote him out 2020. Right, you know? November 3rd. I November remember. 2nd or 3rd. Yeah. I can't even remember which one it is. To change the subject a little bit, how does one become a White House photographer? I think there's there's no uh, blueprint for it. There's no Here's the five-step process. How did it happen with you? Yeah, for me, it was it was a, it was a matter of uh, luck in the sense that when Barack Obama was elected to the Senate in 2004, I was working for the Chicago Tribune, based in Washington D.C., and one of the reporters in the bureau and myself um, embarked on a uh, series of articles of his first year in the Senate. And because we were his quote-unquote hometown paper, we got access to him that other national outlets didn't. Uh, and when you're a photographer and you need access, you're in his intimate spaces. Um, you know, So as a result, he got to see how I worked, got to see that I took my job. Seriously, we developed a professional relationship. That's all it was at, at the time. And, um, but I think as a result of him getting to know me a little bit uh, in, in that capacity, that when he was elected president, he asked me to become his photographer. Did you cover any of his book tours when he was, uh, when he was writing at the time, when some of his books came out? Yeah, no, I didn't. Before he was president. Yeah, no, no, I didn't cover his book tour at all. Um, You know, it's possible I maybe went to one event. I can't remember, Um, but I did. I I I went to five countries with him as senator. Um, Went to Russia, Azerbaijan, uh, and Ukraine. He went with Richard Lugar, the senator from Indiana, a Republican. And they were inspecting uh, dismantled nuclear weapons and biological weapons. And then on another trip, uh, went to uh, Kenya and, and South Africa with him. Uh, his, and his family came on that, on the, at least on the Kenya portion of the trip. Went to his mother's village, I mean, his grandmother's village. And, um, 
yeah, so just result of those kinds of experiences with him is how I first got to know You're him able a little to bit. Get the, yeah. Would would you agree with me that because you know him so intimately and I don't, but there doesn't seem to be any artifice to him. You know, what you see is really who he is. Is that yeah, true. I mean, I think that people. I mean, don't, he's he's got to I mean, put I something to, on. Yeah, but. yeah, yeah. I mean, I I, I think that um, you know people probably don't uh, see that that he does have a really good sense of humor. I mean, they've seen that at times, but it, you sort of see that more maybe uh, in, in, in behind the scenes. And and he's he's very uh, competitive, as I showed a couple pictures. Right that relate to that in, in my presentation. And, you know, and he does, like anybody, he gets, you know, mad occasionally. Uh, and, and, and he, he doesn't, he doesn't show that publicly that much. Um, uh, you know, even, I mean, I sort of made the, the point too, that he had this very even tempered uh, disposition, which, you know, it would just take a lot to rile him up. He th- and he has the opposite of what we have now. He doesn't seem narcissistic at all, <laughs> you know, in that sense. I'm sure his ego is well-developed. Right. I mean, but you have to have an ego to run. To run. Just to but, run you know, we had an experience here at the book fair with him. Prior to him running with the second book, he came and did an event at the book fair, just as you did. And uh, he was just contemplating whether or not he should run. It was, I think he announced in January, the book fair was in November. And he came and he was pre-signing books. And I was in the room with him for probably about a half an hour, an hour, feeding him books as a bookseller. And he came with with no aid. He came with no, no driver. He just sort of came on his own. And... Uh, no advanced person or anything like that. And all he wanted to do while he was signing the book, he wanted to go have a cigarette and find out where he could watch the Michigan State football game. <laughs> Does that sound like in keeping with who he might be? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although he did uh, quit cold turkey smoking. Yeah, well, at that uh, time at, at he the might not Yeah, no, I know. He liked to have a cigarette every once in a while. Um, and, and he's very much of a sports uh fanatic and i mean the times that i would go uh, well he would work in the residence uh uh at night by himself um every night i mean for four or five hours sometimes he'd be up till two o'clock in the morning reading his briefing books making calls he read 10 letters from ordinary americans every night and responded to those so his he did his homework every night but oftentimes i if i would go upstairs to the residence to photograph him doing something or other uh in in that office in the residence he, he there'd be a game on of course. you know and sometimes the sound wouldn't even be on <laughs> yeah, it'd just be you know while he was doing his work he would be glancing up at the game right. well and the upshot of that thing was that we went and there were about 3,000 people who showed up for him. He was questioning, you know, whether Florida would really go for him. And and I remember him, uh, as he walked off stage and he had a standing ovation, he turned and he said, I guess Florida might be in play for me, <laughs> which was great. He it, it gave us such hope. And and that's, I think, what you pick up so much in this book. You've, you kind of, we forget that we've moved into a dark period and you bring us out of that dark period. Um, talk about how you came up with the title, Shade. It's a great story. Well, the what what I started doing on Instagram led to uh, a, a bunch of stories in newspapers and magazines, and um, and and uh, 
the headlines of these stories were often thing uh, something like uh, you know former Obama photographer throws shade at Trump, and I didn't really know what that meant. Uh, I knew what I was doing. Uh, I knew some people called it trolling, but I didn't know the term throwing shade. And then um, you know, so I actually looked it up and uh, said to myself, "Yeah, that's that's what I'm doing," which is sort of like making snarky comments about um, right. other people. Uh, and then I actually wanted to entitle the book "Throwing Shade," and my book editor said, "No, everybody knows what what just shade means." Well, I, you brought it to people's attention more yeah. than anyone else because I didn't know it either. Really, I had heard it, but I didn't know it until until you started doing it. You know, we're very fortunate down here, at least we've been for many, many years. The Miami Herald has always had a really great photojournalism team, going to Haiti, going to cover wars in Central and and Latin America. Uh, Talk about the importance of photojournalism, uh, if you can. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's happening in this day and age is uh, newspapers are um, having less and less... uh, budgets to keep a good photo staff intact. And um, I, th- I think it's adversely affecting um, news- newspapers all around the country. But there are some that uh, still have their core group of photojournalists um, that are often, often doing um, really good work. Just in terms of issues of today, I mean, you you look at the in the last week, just the the unbelievable pictures that are coming out of the fires in California. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but also, um, we now have a president who lies about the news constantly. And and oftentimes tries to scare people with the news. Let's take this caravan of people in Central America moving their way through uh, Mexico. Uh, why why are they leaving their countries? Because of political violence and poverty and corruption, and they're just seeking a better life for their family. And instead, we have a president who tries to scare people into thinking that they're going to cross our, our border and m- murder our children, essentially, is what he's saying, saying there's Middle Easterners, bad Middle Easterners. Right. And photojournalists that are covering that caravan are showing us the people that are actually in the caravan, which is a lot of women and young children. It's not a group that are of people who are wanting to come into our country to wreak havoc on our citizens. It's 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 ridiculous. Completely. They're seeking they're seeking asylum because of the conditions in their own country. Well journalism has never been more important and photojournalism now is such truth telling. Yeah. Picture what the cliche, the picture is worth a thousand words, right? How how did you get started in photography at all? Did you study it in school or Yeah, well I actually went to uh, Boston University with the hopes of becoming a sports writer. Uh, so I was in their in their communication school, and then in my junior year, I took a photography class, and I think probably the first roll of film I developed, and then made a print in the darkroom, 
and ma- the image ma- magically appeared under those red safe lights in the tray of developer. This is old school days of developing your own black and white film. Uh, you know, it was magic to me. And the I, I knew right away this was something I wanted to do. I didn't know if I could be successful at it. It took me a long time to get to the point where I was any good. Um, but it was really the first thing in my life that really spoke to me as this is this is what I want to do. Did you hook on with a newspaper pretty quickly? Not or? quickly. No, it took me like five years before I got to the point where... I was any good where I where I uh, got a job at a at a newspaper. As a general, did you work sports or did you general photography? Yeah, no, general photography at two small papers in Kansas, then at the Chicago Sun Times. Did you know? Did some sports, but it was general assignments. It was news, features, sports. Were there some photographers that influenced you in some particular way, or people you admire? Yeah, no, there's definitely people that I admire. I think early on, I was so ignorant of um, other uh, photographers. I didn't, like, it was more, I, I didn't really know any because uh, I hadn't really studied it at all. But then over the years, there's definitely people that, I, you know, that I looked up to, including a guy by the name of Yoshi Okamoto, who was LBJ's White House right. photographer. And was really the first White House photographer, official White House photographer, that that truly documented a president for history. Up until that point, it was very hit or miss. Right. I mean, Kennedy had two military photographers, but they didn't document everything that Kennedy did in terms of like even the official stuff. It was more ceremonial stuff, but they weren't in there in all the sit room meetings and and things like that. So it was very sporadic, uh, the, the the their their coverage of his presidency. And then when Okamoto came in with LBJ, he was the one who was just nonstop, always there, photographing LBJ in every meeting, every social event. Um, and and I think that anybody that's done my job since then has tried to like live up to did that the con- bar that he set. Did that continue with Nixon? And, and did Nixon have his own? Nixon uh, had his own photographer, but did not really give his access. his photographer good access at all. And you talked is, a little bit about the access you had. and My access with President Obama was, was incredible. I think it was at the same sort of level as Okamoto. They were completely two different people. People. <laughs> I mean, you know, LBJ was a crude individual in a lot of ways, and um, and and some of Okamoto's pictures are just so incredible because they're, you know, it's it's LBJ in bed, uh, you know, with his aides there taking notes as he's dict. You know, that's not the kind of picture that President Obama would allow me to be there for. I mean, there wouldn't be any aid in his bedroom right. when he's in bed. Or on the toilet. Or right. on the toilet. <laughs> uh, but but I did have incredible access to President Obama and everything that he did. And um, yeah, and, 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 you know, but for me, Okamoto will, will always be the, the guy that really... That's, uh, that sort of kicked off this idea. I think he for more you. than kicked it off. No, I but think I mean he, for you uh, as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and how did that job with Reagan come about? Yeah, that was another like sort of lucky situation. Um, 
someone that I had known professionally in my uh, days in Kansas. Uh, she, she had been the director of photography at the Kansas City Star, became the White House photo editor. And Michael Levins, who was Reagan's chief photographer, was looking for someone to work with him. Uh, and, and Carol uh, Greenewald was her name. She suggested me su- to, to Michael. And so it was just you, one of those You were very things. young at the time. I was in my 20s. Yeah, yeah. that's quite, a, quite an opportunity. Yeah. And, and the world changed so much during his presidency yeah. as well. Yeah. Must have been kind of remarkable. Um, if you can, I'd love to end this uh, on a really upbeat, positive note. And I, you have it all laid out in your book where you write, What Comes Next? Do you mind reading, sure. reading that a little bit or reading the whole thing? It's not very long. You know, originally this was the the end of my introduction. Oh, really? And then I decided that we should put this at the back of the book. So you've you've gone through all the pictures in the book and my captions, and here's how I end it. What comes next? Throwing shade is one thing, but it's time for us to take the next step. It's not enough to voice disbelief at what's taking place. Let's use our energy to do something about it. Vote, for one. Help others get to the polls. March in the streets for issues that are important to you. Write or call your congressperson about how you feel. It all matters. It may take a while, but let's bring respect back to the Oval Office. Let's bring respect back to our country. As Abraham Lincoln said at Gettysburg, our task is that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Pete, thanks so much for the important work that you do, and thanks so much for being here as well. Thanks for having me on. 